Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, conversations with scholars and authors, ideas from diverse viewpoints and perspectives. Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy. My name is Corey Clark. I am the Director of Academic Engagement for Heterodox Academy, and I will occasionally be hosting episodes alongside our regular host, Chris Martin. Michael Roth is my guest today. Michael is a historian, the president of Wesleyan University, and the author of the book Safe Enough Spaces, a pragmatist's approach to inclusion, free speech, and political correctness on college campuses. Uh, Heterodox Academy held its first ever book club a few weeks back, and we chose to read Safe Enough Spaces as our first book. Um, and we had a lively debate about it. Lively discussion. <laughs> Not a lot of debate. Um, now we have Michael here to discuss the book, and we will include a couple of questions from our book club participants um, in this episode as well. So hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. The title of your book is Safe Enough Spaces. So perhaps the obvious question to start with is what do you mean by spaces that are safe enough? Well, it was somewhat of a joke title when I uh, (laughs) came up with it with um, the help of my wife, uh, who's a professor here at Wesleyan uh, also. Uh, in the fifties, the psychoanalysts had this idea of the, uh, good enough mother, uh, and, uh, which evolved into the good enough parent when I guess they realized that father's parent too, or he's <laughs> supposed to. Uh, and so the, the good enough uh, parent was the parent who didn't make you psychotic. And they came up with this designation because, uh, in the age of, parental advice distributed through mass media that really gets takes off with Dr. Spock and uh, subsequent commentators. Uh, th- there's uh, among some uh, folks, a tendency to try to be the perfect parent and uh, the perfect parent is likely to drive their child crazy. And uh, uh, likewise, the parent who says, well, I'm not going to do anything. Uh, I'm just going to let my kid learn the laws of phys- physics by running out in traffic um, that's a prescription <laughs> for disaster as well. So came up with this idea of the good enough uh, uh, parent, which was a parent who uh, didn't try for perfection um, and didn't try to design the ideal childhood, um, uh, but also uh, provided a, an environment in which a trust and affection could, uh, could bloom and a child could thrive. Uh, and, and the safe enough space similarly is a, idea that we need places where um, uh, students and, and faculty uh, can explore ideas, can confront uh, uh, disagreement and and uh, even offensive notions that uh, cut to the core in some cases. But at the same time, they should be spaces where people are free from intimidation and harassment and bullying. And so the idea of a safe enough space was to riff on the, the, the much maligned idea of a safe space, uh, which gets caricatured, to, because I think almost everybody agrees that um, classrooms and other campus spaces should be free of the kind of harassment that used to be endemic to college campuses. Uh, and I think almost everybody agrees that they should be places where students can learn by growing uncomfortable with ideas that they haven't yet um, learn to understand fully. Yeah. So I actually have a question, a follow-up question about that. Um, so I, I agree 
presumably just about everyone agrees that campuses should be safe from physical harm. Um, and where you get more pushback from people or where people are more uncomfortable with the concept of safe spaces, perhaps, is um, when it comes to psychological and emotional harm. Um, but I think it's probably even more complicated than that because there are blurred lines surrounding um, what constitutes physical safety. So, for example, if somebody feels threatened, whether they are threatened or not, or um, people who report being traumatized in some way, which maybe is a it seems like a kind of physical harm, even though it is maybe more emotional. Um, so when people are maybe experiencing psychological discomfort or emotional discomfort, but they're appealing to physical harm or like reporting that they feel threatened, like they might receive physical harm. How do we draw the line there? And how do we adjudicate between disputes where one party intended no physical harm and, and caused no physical harm, but the, the other party seems to feel as though they are suffering some kind of real harm? Yeah, I, I find it puzzling that uh, people who are otherwise quite sophisticated about the mind-body issues uh, rely on this notion of a physical versus psychological harm and talking about issues of speech and learning. I, I, I really, I just don't understand it. I mean, the, the idea that somehow physical harm is more real than psychological harm, it's just ridiculous. I mean, I'm nobody not- believes, nobody believes today, I think, that... Uh, uh, people with psychiatric uh, illnesses or emotional illnesses don't have real illnesses and right. don't suffer, don't really suffer. I mean, the idea that somehow you don't really suffer if you have anxiety, but you really suffer if you have a sprained ankle, that's crazy. <laughs> Who, nobody believes that. So right. to fall back on that because of some narrow-minded view of free speech that's do, you know, a doctrinaire view of free speech seems silly. I think you have to distinguish between real suffering and and moderate discomfort well how do you do that that's yeah that's hard that's what that's what but that's what teachers do all the time that's what parents do all the time when their child comes in and says oh my god i'm dying and you, and you say no actually you stubbed your toe you have to distinguish it's not about being physical or psychological it's about trying to figure out how much harm is uh, we should tolerate in order to build resilience and how much harm we should um, protect our our uh, charges from because it actually prevents further development. That's a hard thing to do, but th- there is no formula for it. There's no formula. And if you say physical versus psychological, it doesn't give you a formula. It just gives you an excuse for not paying attention to emotional <laughs> distress. Yeah, I totally agree with you that certain kinds of psychological harm are actually worse than physical harm. The The tricky thing is um, how do we decide which kinds of psychological harm warrant sure. uh, our concern or that we should we should ban certain kinds of behavior in the classroom because someone else in the classroom is experiencing a certain kind of psychological harm and where we draw the line there Um it, it sometimes gets it sometimes gets very uh, tricky. I think most of the time it isn't that tricky, but sometimes it is, and it's those cases that that you know get a lot of attention, rightly so, I suppose. Um, but um, you know, I I think it's it's um, the, the 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 this issue of how we determine when someone is building resilience rather than being broken down. Um, in a way that doesn't build resilience is a is an important 
a decision to make as a teacher. And we make it in all kinds of ways um, when we're in the classroom. Um, you know, most teachers today don't uh, give grades below uh, a B plus, let's say, and in, in places like Westland below an A minus. And is that is that true? <laughs> yeah, it's true. It, it's true at wow. NYU. It's it's even worse, I think. Um, it's true. And, you know, I don't know where your home place is, but um, but it's it just seems to be the statistically the case. Um, and it it and I think what ha- evolves is p- students who feel that they can't actually take it if they get, a, I don't know, a B minus. Well, actually, you know, they can. <laughs> I, I love, they, 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 they can. But as a teacher, um, you have to decide um, when it's appropriate to a student to say to the student, this is really a stupid thing to say because that's how you get their attention as opposed to why have you taken the point of view you have? <laughs> and those are decisions we all, we've, we've always, teachers have always made about how much um, you push someone because by pushing them to an area where they're experiencing discomfort, um, they are going to learn more as opposed to pushing them so far that they are going to turn off. Now, I do think there is something to be said. I, I Perhaps not uh, as generous as they might have been in the book with some of the theories about our young people today are being less resilient and they're getting coddled and that's kind of stuff. Um, I, I do think there are students who appeal to um, appeal for protection earlier than they might, but it's up to the professor then to say, nah, I'm sorry, not protecting this, you know, it, it, but there's no formula for that. And I think uh, you, you, I tell some stories in the book about classes in which, you know, you, you give students some sense of what they're in for, but you can actually put them in a state of extraordinary discomfort in order to have them confront real issues that from which they can learn. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I really liked about the book was uh, the sort of historical context around a lot of our modern higher ed buzzwords. So you talked about diversity and inclusion and PC culture and free speech and free inquiry. And how did we get there? And how did we come to um, like, what is, how long have we cared about these kinds of things within higher education? And you talk about um, dating back at least to the late, uh, 1970s or early 1980s um, thinkers worrying about the state of higher education and you know balancing student comfort and free inquiry. So I'm, I've asked many academics this question before, and I haven't gotten a clear answer. So maybe you're the person to give me one. Um, from your perspective as a historian and as an individual who's been working in higher education for a while, would you say things really are different now than they were, say, 20 or 40 years ago? Um, have things like people say things have gotten worse? Have they gotten worse, or is maybe that not even the right way to think about it? Maybe, maybe the tension between student comfort and free inquiry is something we want. You want people pushing back against it, and you want people pushing for it, and that's really going to be the best state. And that's how higher ed- education should proceed. Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, you know, worse or better according to what criteria, right? I mean, it's not mm-hmm. in general. I don't uh, to say it's worse or better. It's not. I'm not sure how to uh, how to make that judgment. I I, I do think um, so. If you're in, if one is interested in our um, our universities places where um, new ideas can be entertained um, and uh, explored with rigor uh, uh, today more than in the past. 
you know, it, it really would be hard for me to, 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 to measure that. I think there are some ideas that are no longer explored with seriousness um, and uh, others that have gained currency. And that was that, but that statement would have been true 40 years ago. <laughs> uh, right. uh, I, I think that, that the, the um, it's what has changed uh, are that, that the campuses are uh, especially at elite universities uh, are, uh, more diverse than they were in uh, 40 years ago in the sense that women uh, have a lot more uh, to say about how the universities are run and the content of the classes uh, than when I was an undergraduate, um, uh, which, which is just a few years after Wesleyan was co-ed in my case, and, and, and a lot of schools like Wesleyan in those days. So women were fairly new to those spaces, and men um, uh, uh were uh, used to running them uh, as men's clubs uh, now with women in them. Uh, and, and that's quite different today. I think it's good that it's quite different. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, we have a, a significant percentage of students at, at higher at elite institutions from low income families. And, and uh, that is different, I think from uh, 40, 50 years ago, but, I think you have a much greater kind of inequality weighing on campuses today than you did then. Um, so that, um, uh, and, and that leads to a different kind of politics. I think that, that um, low income first generation students today um, actually think of themselves as a, as an identity group, which certainly wasn't the case uh, in the 1970s. I mean, there were at least as many first generation students, I suspect because their the previous generation didn't go to college as often, but, um, but I don't, I certainly, I was a first generation student, they say, but I never thought myself in that category. There wasn't a category like that. So I think the categorization uh, of students into identity groups and the identity politics, which follows from that is certainly stronger today. And some, in some ways that's really good. And in some ways um, it, it leads to different forms of parochialism. And so I think as a teacher, one's, one's job is to break down parochialism in ways that expose people who have certain allegiances to the possibilities of having other allegiances or seeing their previous uh, allegiances as, as perhaps being uh, unworthy of their support and, and becoming more self-critical as well as critical of other uh, uh, groups. I do think that the it's pretty well documented, and the Heterodox Academy has done a, a great job of doing this. It's that, that there is a um, a narrowing of political experience among faculty members, um, especially at Northeast schools and especially at elite schools. And um, although you know faculty members are are smart people and they're able to teach things that they don't agree with, let's say, or they don't you know they're not partisans for that stuff. I do think that the uh, it takes an effort to ensure that you as a teacher and that your department uh, and its curriculum actually exposes students to a broader range of ideas in the humanities and social sciences than the people in the department actually believe in. And I think that in many schools, that's that's just that's not the case. And, you know, I have argued that we should push back against um, uh, the current narrowing of political discourse on campuses by exposing students to um, conservative and religious traditions that they might not be exposed to automatically given the 
uh, inclinations of the faculty. And, you know, I have friends who think I really overstate that, you know, people who say in philosophy who teach Aristotle and Plato all the time. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, you know, they're not exactly um, contemporary American progressives. Um, and, and, and I do, th- and they teach Aristotle and Plato, not because they are Platonists or Aristotelians necessarily, but they teach them seriously and thoughtfully. So I, but I, so I, I want to acknowledge that people can and often do teach things with which they disagree. I, I certainly do that myself, but I think just as was the case in the seventies and eighties, when men said, well, I could teach women's history. We don't need to hire women to do that. I wish you just hire the best person. I have a, you know, I think that the rhetoric of we're just hiring the best people and they happen to all agree with us politically. I think that rhetoric is really suspect. And we have to have what I've called an affirmative action program for conservative and, and religious and libertarian thinkers. And I, I still feel that pretty strongly. It's harder these days because of the idiocy of the official uh, conservative mo- movement in the United States, the kind of Trumpianization of, of the right in the United States has led to a, uh, a kind of aggressive idiocy, which has no place on a college <laughs> campus. And um, it's just anti-science, it's anti-inquiry, and it's, it just uses lying as a technique of rhetoric. And that really we shouldn't allow to become part of the campus just because it's popular in the country. We have to resist stupidity uh, at universities. That's one of our first jobs. Um, and But that doesn't mean we should you know, ignore the rich tradition of serious conservative thinking um, and 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 um, market oriented libertarian thinking that, that w- with which one might agree or disagree, but is kind of a serious contender uh, on some key issues, the humanities and social sciences. Yeah, um, our members in the book club noted your distaste for Trump and his supporters. <laughs> um, I I personally think the average Trump supporter is not is not as bad as a lot of people say. But uh, I agree. Like there are certain things we want to take more seriously, and I think philosophy is such a great example of where academics are. It's it's kind of part of the field to overcome your personal beliefs and like whether you think a, a particular philosopher was right or wrong, you still teach their ideas as worthy of consideration. And that's something that I'm a social psychologist and that's something that I think we don't do. Um, we just teach whatever we think is the right thing. And I think now more than ever, that's something we probably should um be rethinking with the replication crisis and what is motivating some of these scientific findings. And maybe we should be opening up um, the range of what we're teaching. Yeah. Um, Social psychology, I find really interesting in that regard because uh, it's very popular among students and, um, and lots of interesting findings, some of which are counterintuitive, but the, the, and some of my friends in the field, they, they have a very clear political um, uh, uh, atmosphere that they create <laughs> classes. And they'll say to me, well, well, what I'm actually encouraging is compassion, let's say, or uh, uh, fellow feeling or generosity. Are you, who's against that? You know? And I, 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 get, I get that part, um, but there is a, sometimes a, a missionary dimension to social psychology that, that – um, uh, is not just hygienic; it is political or values based, and I think uh, the field would do well to call attention to those things, um, so the students are more aware of them and could be more self-critical. Um, but, um, but, uh, but you know, that's that's uh, each field I think has its own has its own proclivities, 
And I think what happens in apparently what in search committees and in admissions offices is that, you know, what, people begin to just um, you get a groupthink phenomenon <laughs> and you start hiring people you think are clearly the best, but they're the best from your point of view because they agree with your prejudices rather than on some independent metric. And and I, I have had this argument at Wesley with some departments that really feel strongly that they should have a political profile and not just an intellectual one. And hmm. un- unfortunately, uh, I don't have enough power, so I can't. <laughs> so I can't. <laughs> I can't just make them do what I think is right, which of course is the, is makes sense. But so, so you're saying they want to like they want to like incorporate the politics of the candidates into their decision making for hiring? Not the not overtly, but you know, let's say you have a social science department that says we're a feminist department. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they, they say, that's not political. That's a kind of moral stance. We don't want any, you know, you know, or they say it would be come and say, well, you want us to hire some racists because you know, <laughs> right. you know, we're anti-racist. And of course the answer is not that they should hire racists, but there may be some people working in a field who actually are not taking a stand on political issues because of the, the nature of their work. And, uh, or if they did, they would take it differently than the majority of the department. And it's interesting to me because we recognize these same folks would recognize that students today want to find faculty who look like them. That's the expression. I, I don't think this is a good thing, but it is a thing. It is true that many students feel that way, that they gravitate to people with whom they can identify um, and if we have no one on the faculty with whom conservative um, uh, or religious students can identify, um, uh, then we have the different kind of replication crisis, right? We are replicating, <laughs> but we're replicating people on the basis of prejudice and 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 uh, politics rather than on the basis of inquiry and understanding. Yeah, I could talk about this for hours, but I, I feel like I have to get at least some of our member questions. Oh, sure. Here. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no, this, is, I, this is great. Um, so let's see. One of our one of our members asked, um, what is the systematic evidence behind the causal claim that a diverse student body enhances learning outcomes? And specifically, which forms of diversity have been shown to improve which student outcomes? Yeah, well, I think um, the appeal to... Uh, um, um, empirical evidence for improving student outcomes is is really a fraud. I mean, there are um, people who do think that there is clear evidence, um, and the Stanford Design School has a a website with you know, tons of references about how uh, diverse groups are more creative, that echo chambers are le- less likely to produce good results than. Uh, um, than groups that have uh, a, 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 lots of different points of view. Um, and so um, uh, I think there's, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of uh, social science evidence that uh, conducted by people who want to have the conclusions that they got. Um, however, on the other hand, I think it's being commonsensical that if you're going to be graduating students into a world in which there are people from lots of different backgrounds do, with different points of view, you would w- uh, serve those students well by having them um, learn with people of different backgrounds with different points of view. Um, the, the, the other thing about uh, diversity leading to uh, outcomes is that I, I, I think we have a responsibility in American higher education since we benefit from um, public support in the form of uh, tax exemptions and the like, uh, we have an obligation to 
uh, promote the um, social mobility and not just to um, cement social privilege. And although places like the one I lead, Wesleyan, does a lot of, we do a lot of cementing, right? I mean, most, we have a lot, disproportionate number of, uh, or percentage of rich people versus in the, from, compared to the population as a whole. And so I, I think we have to work really hard to find uh, strong uh, students from a, a variety of backgrounds so that our students can understand people who have different experiences than themselves. Because when they graduate, they will we want them to live in those worlds. Now, the, the questioner could say, well, actually, most people, when they graduate from American universities, go into a much more segregated world than the university itself. I think that would be true. And I think that's a, you know, a, a, a terrible thing for American democracy and American culture. Um, and that um, the ability to listen to and learn from people with a variety of points of view um, is um, an important part of being an educated person. Yeah, certainly it's true for a lot of students, but I wonder if the majority of students, like if you go into academia, you it's a totally, that's not a representative world whatsoever, but for a lot of people um, who work, you know, jobs that require a college degree, they might be exposed to different kinds of people and it would be good to have some exposure to that before um, you're out, you know, trying to make a living, but I think so. I'm not sure that it's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting problem. Um, Okay, so another member wrote, uh, you wrote or asked, you wrote safe enough spaces before COVID-19 changed the world. How do you feel the virus has influenced your calibration of safety on college campuses? And I guess I'll add on to that in general, how do you um, think or hope COVID-19 will impact campus climate, both in online learning and when students finally do return to campus? It's a really good question. I I feel like it's very hard to give a good answer to that question when you're in the middle of things. <laughs> and you're <laughs> <familiar>. <laughs> um, You know, it's like in 2008 and nine, people kept saying, you know, oh, it's this, nothing will be the same. Actually, they said that after, after this September 11th and, you know, the, no, the subways would never be the same. That this would never be the same. Yeah, it's all nonsense. Uh, um, and, and, and because in the middle of it, it feels like this is the most important thing that's ever happened to me or to my generation. Or, and if, it, it feels that way because it's so it's so intense, but it's it's really hard to find good pre- people who are good at predicting the aftermath. I mean, look, remember the rhetoric around disruption and the end of Kevin carried this thing recently. Uh, I saw on Twitter that so the end of college is well now it's coming true. You know, he wrote a book years ago about the end of college because of the internet and uh, online classes and MOOCs. You know, it was going to change everything. So I'm suspicious of such rhetoric. On the other hand. <laughs> as a guy I wrote a book called Safe Enough Spaces and as a president of university trying to figure out whether to open in the fall, you know, is it safe enough? Is the university going to be safe enough without, if there's no vaccine or we don't know what vaccines do yet? Um, and what is a tolerable level of risk? And I do think that um, as we think about um, opening up universities and other parts of the economy, we have to think about what's a tolerable level of risk and for whom Right. I mean, uh, there are people uh, uh, who argue that it's a tolerable level of risk and they think they say that because they are not yet in a high risk group. So it's tolerable for them. But if you have a, you know, a five times higher death rate for people over 70, that's OK for them. They don't mind that. Well, I think that is that's that's wrong headed. I think we have to uh, think about 
how do we protect at a university the most vulnerable? How do we make it safe enough for older professors or staff members while also um, encouraging safer practices for young people? who at Wesleyan seem to think they're immortal typically. <laughs> um, and, and, and that will make it a challenge. I really do hope that we, that we uh, open uh, the university and that we um, go back to having a cosmopolitan uh, environment in which international students and faculty play an important role. Um, and I think it under, the COVID uh, also underscores the importance of strong federal leadership on global and national issues. Uh, so when you don't have strong federal leadership, uh, you have real problems. Um, and and if you were in a war footing, as um, even like someone as pacifistic as Daniel Allen talks about, and one of my heroes, I, uh, she's you know you should we should be on a war footing. What does that mean? That means that the the, go- the government as a whole and the nation as a whole should be marshaling its resources uh, to fight a common enemy. In this case, uh, COVID nineteen. And in order to do that, you need science, you need epidemiology, you need sociologists, you need a lot of people thinking hard about a, a problem um, and having resources to attack it. So I think in the aftermath of COVID-19, I hope that we understand that um, that universities are special places where advanced research gets done and people get trained to tackle real problems and not are not just bastions of elitists uh, who are afraid of free speech. They're actually places where people are engaging in risky thinking about absolutely crucial uh, uh, issues in the sciences and society. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, is there going to be some, it it seems like a tricky position to be in, to be the person to make the decision. Like we're going back in the fall and you don't, I don't think you want to be the first university to make that decision, but someone do you have to be the first to make the decision, right? If that's going to be what happens. So like who, who takes the risk and makes the bold the bold decision, and then other yeah. people follow follow in their footsteps? Well, I think it it you know it, it, there will be some guidance in this regard from uh, government authorities, and I mean even Christine Paxson just recently uh, from the time we're recording this had a piece in the New York Times about how Brown should open in the fall, but it actually says if 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 there's testing, if we have supportive isolation, and if there's good tracing. Uh, I, I think that's that's exactly right, uh, and, and Brown's not going to invent the test itself or or the apps for tracing. But what we need a concerted effort to put universities and other essential enterprises in a position where they can be safe enough for their faculty, staff, and students. And that that probably will mean in places uh, larger universities that there won't be any b- really really big classes, and that you have to design uh, uh, food distribution so that there aren't l- large gatherings. But it but but I I think that um, schools will probably uh, move not one at a time, <laughs> but in groups in this way. There are a couple like Kyle State Fullerton has already announced it'll be online. Mitch Daniels at Purdue announced that he's going to be open. But when you read the uh, fine print or the, the second paragraph of the story, usually <laughs> they say you know um, well we we hope to be because no, nobody wants to put their student body or their faculty at an undue risk. But, you know, it's a question of you know, that people aren't totally safe where they are right now. And so we want to make sure that we provide a safe enough environment for them to study in um, and to support the kind of research that will enable uh, societies to deal with uh, pandemics in the future. Great. 
Um, so I actually have a bunch more questions for you, but in the interest of time, I'll give you just one more from a um, submitted from a member. Uh, they were actually looking for recommendations for students who have been chastised for what they perceive to be as not adhering to mainstream liberal ideas. So presumably you've been involved in many student disputes. So on the end of the person causing offense to other uh, others and on the end of the person claiming offense, what can individuals do to resolve these kinds of disputes? Like what is an effective strategy there? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that there's a general answer one can give. And in Safe Enough Spaces, I, I give a couple of stories of people who who felt they offended by, um, let's say, uh, the, uh, they, what they perceived as racist um, remarks. And the person making the remarks was offended to be called a racist <laughs> right. because what they thought they were doing was making another kind of point. And, and um, you know, sometimes you're, there's, there's the ability to create new grounds for conversation and debate. And sometimes there isn't. Um, uh, so in the case of uh, we had this free speech debate around a critique of Black Lives Matter on our campus a few years ago, and um, and there was a lot of anger and people yelling, screaming, and that wasn't very useful. And um, and and everybody claiming free speech, you know, the people yelling and screaming, the people said they was their, they, that was their free speech. The other people said that they were being yelled at because of their speech. Um, and and I think what, what what we did, which may be a model for other things, is um, when when Jelani Cobb wrote this piece in The New Yorker saying free speech rhetoric is often a cover for racism. I had recently published something about black called Black Lives Matter. So does free speech. So I felt somewhat attacked by his uh, article, although he didn't have my thing in mind that mine was very local. Um, but I invited him to come and speak at Wesleyan about his point of view, which was not my point of view, because um, uh, he's a really smart guy. <laughs> and, and maybe I'm wrong, you know. And uh, and so he and he was good enough to come, even though if he had seen my thing, he would say, oh, that's not, you know, that's not the kind of per thing I believe in or the kind of person I would want to have dinner with. But <laughs> we did have dinner. And then he gave oh. his talk. And and the students were shocked that when he got up to the on the to the podium and very generously he didn't have to do this. Uh, he said, um, I want to thank Michael Roth for bringing me here today. And then all the activists who were in the room were like, what? What Roth? He's a fascist, you know. <laughs> and uh, and and he's like, you know, Roth and I don't agree about certain things, but it's really good to talk with him about it. And so there it was: these two people who don't agree, modeling disagreement, not agreement. We modeling disagreement, and and then he, um, in a kind of ingenious way, uh, both um, um, uh, bucked up the activists and I gave them support, and at the same time you know, steered them away from their, some of their automatic reactions. Not in, He wasn't supporting me in that regard. He was, he was just being a great teacher by bringing disagreement into relation to what people already believed so that they could expand the range of ideas they would consider. And so the answer to the question is finding ways to have a conversation that expand the range of ideas that people will consider. Because some of those ideas might be true, and some of the things you believed before might be false. And I think that sometimes it's possible to do that, and sometimes it's, you know, the conflicts are too intense or too deep, or, or there's no interest in finding an expanded range to consider. I mean, with some, you know, violent ideologies uh, and totalitarian ideologies, there is no interest in, in, in that expansion. 
And there's nothing to do about that but to, to defend yourself, I think, um, and the people you care about. But most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, you sh- I think it's appropriate for colleges, universities, and their teachers to help students expand the range of things they would consider and expand the possibility that they would discover that they're wrong about what they believe in. Because that, you know, it's not just getting more truths. It's also re- getting rid of some of the false ideas you had before. And um, and uh, I, I I was very lucky in, in my life to have teachers who were really good at that, who could be very tough at times and gentle at other times, but um, m- making, making one really uh, get rid of some of one's prejudices and open up to the possibility of new ideas. Yeah, I, I love that story. And I totally agree. I wish more professors would model that kind of behavior for students and, you know, demonstrate that they're open to listening to other people um, and having like decent relationships with people who disagree with them. I think that's really cool. Well, that's what I really admire about the Heterodox Academy is that I think you guys encourage that, um, you know, and and I'm uh, I mean, the fact that you invited me to be on a, b- a book club podcast when my book is actually critical of your founder, it's <laughs> <laughs> a good sign. And, it, and he and I don't, we don't know each other well, but I, I, I learned from the, uh, him and from the other members, from John and other members of the, your, the heterodox society, we don't have to agree. Uh, and that's what makes it so interesting. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. You can follow Michael on Twitter at mroth78. You can find a link to his book in the show notes. If you have any comments, you can contact me at clark at heterodoxacademy.org or on Twitter at imhardcory. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org on Twitter at HDX Academy and on Facebook. This podcast is for informational purposes only and doesn't represent the views of Heterodox Academy.